sermon series entitled The Gospel of Mark, Servant and Savior. We're working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark and now through some selected uh, passages of Mark. And today we come to week 10 in our series. We're calling this Fan or Follower. Fan or Follower, which are you? We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. There's also uh, outlines available as you come in the front door. You can always pick those up if you're a note-taking type of a person. David Ayers was just sitting in the stands with his wife, enjoying a hockey game. The hockey team was the Carolina Hurricanes of the NHL. And he was just sitting there enjoying that game when he saw the goalie go down. Now at 42 years old and 15 years removed from a kidney transplant, his dreams of playing professional hockey were long gone. The closest that he came to professional ice was driving the Zamboni on the practice rink and serving as an on-call emergency goaltender in the extremely rare event that both goalies on his team were injured during the game. Now usually that just meant a free ticket to the game and dinner for David and his wife afterward. But after that first goalie went down, David nudged his wife and said he had to leave. He left his seat and he went down and he got half-dressed in his hockey gear. And then his phone started blowing up with text messages. Another collision had occurred and the backup goalie was injured as well. It was David's turn to step into the spotlight. He later said, I've been on this ice many times without fans. Put fans in the mix and it's a whole different game. Obviously, but hey, once in a lifetime, I'll take it. Well, things didn't start well for David when the first two shots that he faced went right into the back of the net. But one of his teammates skated by and encouraged him. He said, just have fun. We don't care if you let 10 goals in. Well, David said that was a turning point for him. He stopped the next eight shots to secure the win. The head coach of the Carolina Hurricanes said, he just gave us an incredible memory. David goes down in history as the oldest goalie in the NHL to win his debut. David said, I'd love to see somebody else in the league get the same opportunity. So would every fan. Well, there is a huge difference between sitting in the stands and watching a game and actually getting down into it, isn't there? You know, as followers of Jesus Christ, it's not our job to know how the Lord is going to use us. It is our job to be ready at all times to answer that call. He doesn't ask you to be the right age or to have the right skill set, but simply to be ready to serve. That's what he'll take. And then he'll do the rest. So are we ready to step out of the stands, ready to get out on the ice, out on the field, out of the crowd, and out of the team? Well, you know, Jesus drew a lot of crowds. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark alone, the word crowd appears 34 different times. 
I want you to take a look at the first part of our text today in Mark 3, verses 7 through 9, where we see the word used three different times. In fact, let's read this passage together, Mark 3, 7 through 9. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's quite a scene, isn't it? Now, I want you to listen to this definition of crowd that I found. I think it maybe helps explain by why many of us, and Jesus too, sometimes shied away from crowds. This says, a crowd is a large number of people gathered together, we know that, typically in a disorganized or unruly way. Synonyms include throng, horde, mass, multitude, pack, mob, and rabble. That doesn't sound very inviting, does it? The more that the crowds pressed in on Jesus, the more that it kept his disciples from having some close contact with him. Twice in our text, you'll notice that the crowd is described as a great crowd, much, many, a great multitude. And you'll see that people travel great distances to be with Jesus. Some lived nearby in the area of Galilee where Jesus was located at that time. Others had traveled for several days from Jerusalem and Judea and Tyre and Sidon. And even some had come and it had taken them weeks to get there. Those from Idumea and beyond the Jordan. It's interesting to me that that, that place, Idumea, is where the descendants of Esau lived. And historically, the Edomites were the arch enemies of Israel. They were known to be wicked and rebellious people. And so isn't it awesome to see people that were far away, geographically, but more important, spiritually, far away, were coming to see Jesus. They were drawn to him to his message, to what he was doing. So many people came to Jesus that he had to use a boat as his pulpit so that they wouldn't crush him. What a picture, what a scene. Now we see from the next section of our text that Jesus did two main things when he was ministering to this crowd. The first thing that he did is that he healed many diseases. Look at verse 10. For he healed many so that all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Sick people were surrounding the Savior. I want you to picture that crowd, the jostling, the pushing, people desperate to get close to Jesus. What a fearful time for some people. What a time of great expectations for others as they came to try to get close to the Savior. And what did Jesus do? He made time for them. The next thing I want you to see is that he freed many with demons. Look at verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly charged them not to make him known. And so as the diseased pressed in around him, the demonized fell down before him. 
in the, in the original language, it tells us that that's a repeated action. They kept falling down. Can you imagine this crowd pressing in? Many people, sick, ill, desperate, and some were falling down at his feet, crying out, you are the son of God. And Jesus said, be quiet. Stop talking. In this event, we see the power of Christ. When those demons confessed who he was, he silenced them. I think he did that for two different reasons. First, in that day, there was a common belief that the knowledge of someone's precise name conferred mastery over that person. And so by the demons stating his title, they were trying to show that they were superior to Jesus. That didn't work out so well for them. The second reason that Jesus quieted them was because he didn't want and he certainly didn't need testimony from them. He didn't want to be associated in any way with unclean spirits. In Jesus' day especially, the unclean spirits were rising up. There was a lot of spiritual warfare being encountered as the Son of God came onto the scene in a dark, dark world. We know from Mark chapter 6 that we'll get to later that Jesus didn't dislike crowds. Uh, rather, he cared for the people. Listen to this little verse from ch verse chapter 6. It says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus being shown to the crowds. He cared for the crowds, but always Jesus was most interested in individual people who would make a decision to follow him. In Mark chapter 8, listen to this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus was looking for followers, not just for those who were there to get something, but for those who would make a decision to follow fully. You know, in our world of social media, it's easy to find friends or to be a fan on Facebook or to get followers on Twitter or Instagram. But what we see in this passage is much deeper than any kind of brief, temporary connection on a social media platform. Jesus is looking for those who will follow him. And so here's our main idea today. Jesus doesn't want us to be fickle fans, but to become faithful followers. Let's say that together. Jesus doesn't want us to be fickle fans, but to become faithful followers. If you don't get anything else today, I want you to take that phrase home with you. He wants us to come out of the stands, out of the crowds, and to seek him. Seek him. Instead of sitting up in the stands, he wants us to get into the game, to join the team. And so are you a fickle fan? Or are you a faithful follower? In the rest of our passage, we're going to explore the process that Jesus uses to move people from being fans to followers, to get us out of the stands and onto the field. In verse 7, we saw that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the crowds came looking for him. And so now we see in verse 13 that then Jesus went up on a mountain, 
and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Hiking up a mountain has a lot of symbolism in the scriptures. It certainly would have reminded those of a Jewish background of the time when Moses went up on the mountain to select his leaders in Exodus 24. The mountain often represents uh, revelation and redemption in the Bible. But then also, hiking up a mountain, that would weed out, don't you think? Those who were just there for the show, those who were just there to get something, looking for a quick, easy fix because Jesus went up on the mountain and to get to Jesus you had to take a hike up the mountain but I want you to see here in this event that it is Jesus who calls us to him in in Luke's event of this same account uh, account of this same event he tells us that that Jesus spent the whole night on the mountain before he called to him those whom he desired that, that shows us the importance of serious prayer before big decisions. It's interesting to note that the way it usually worked in Jesus' day that is that followers would attach themselves to a teacher. They would decide who they were going to follow. Kind of like today. We pick our favorite team, don't we? I'm on team this. And we buy our t-shirts and our gear. We decide who we're going to follow, who we're going to root for. But Jesus here was deciding who he would call. Here we see that Jesus deliberately chose and called to him those that he wanted. And I love how they responded. He called and it says they came. They responded immediately. I wonder, do we respond so quickly to the call of Jesus? Do we obey when he calls? Are we eager to obey? Are we ready to climb the mountain no matter how hard it might be, no matter how steep the path is? Are we committed to the work of following him? So now let's consider this three-part strategy that Jesus uses to move fickle fans to becoming faithful followers. In verse 14, it starts by saying, he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles. The word appointed means to make. It shows that his plan, his plan is to mold and to make us into the people that he desires us to be, into the messengers that he wants us to be. Jesus wants to move us to move from being fans to followers, just like these first 12. And so I see three key characteristics in the next couple of verses, in verses 14 and 15. The first thing is that these followers pursue the presence of Jesus. They pursue the presence of Jesus. The very first thing that we are called to do is to spend time with Jesus. Notice that it says, so that they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Jesus' desire is that his followers will hang out with him. In a world of do, Jesus first wants us at times to just be to take a breath, and to spend time with the Lord. When we're with him, we learn how he loves and how he handles people and what his priorities are. This is the essence of Jesus' training program. There are no huge manuals filled with lengthy lists of rules and regulations. Jesus is all about us living 
in relationship with him. And as we do that, we discover who he is, what he loves, and we love in the same way. I want you to ponder something that I think is, at the, on the one hand, simple, but also kind of startling. You are as close to Christ as you want to be. Just think about that for a moment. You are as close to Christ as you want to be. That's simple because it makes sense, but it's startling because sometimes we think that there's something out there that's keeping us from being close to Christ. Author Jason Crosby puts it like this. God will take you as deep with him as you want to go. You and I must take the responsibility for growing in our relationship with Christ. We won't grow with, as disciples without practicing some discipline in our life because spiritual growth is intentional. It's not automatic. There's a wonderful little proverb in Proverbs 13. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Are we being diligent about pursuing the presence of Jesus in our lives? We do that by spending time with him. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in his word. What is your plan to be in the presence of Jesus? What kind of plan do you have to practice his presence throughout the day? Do you have a, a Bible reading guide? By the way, there are numerous ones that you can find on the internet. A simple Bible reading guide that carries you through the scriptures in an organized manner. Do you have a planned time to pray, to meditate, to listen to God on a daily basis? You see, if we aim for nothing, we're going to hit it every time. By the way, when you spend time in the presence of Jesus, people will notice that. Listen to this verse. It's about two of Jesus' apostles, two of these guys that went up on the mountain with him. In Acts chapter 4, it says, Now, when they, this is the, the religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. You see, these men pursued the presence, and it became obvious to everybody who saw them. When we take these steps to move out of the stands, to join the team, we begin a process of transformation. And when we pursue his presence, it changes us. And guess what? People notice. Well, the next thing I want you to see is that those that follow Jesus gladly proclaim Jesus. They gladly proclaim him. We must first be in his presence, and then we must gladly proclaim him. Look at this next phrase of verse 14. That he might send them out to preach. The word send them out, that makes up the root for that word apostle. An apostle is literally one who is sent. That's what we're trying to do right here at Garden Way Church. We have a mission statement, and it ends with to share him. 
We want that to be a prominent part of our life together. In fact, let's just read and remind ourselves of our mission statement. Starts on the left, to know him, to love him, to share him. The word preach means to act as a herald, an announcer, to send forth the message of the king. And so let me ask you this. What are you doing on a daily basis to announce, to share the message of King Jesus? How does your life gladly proclaim Jesus to those around you? Let me just give you a couple of simple suggestions that could help you to share him. The first is, the simplest of all, do something. Do something. Begin praying and then start sharing. I like what the old preacher D.L. Moody said. Somebody once complained about the way that he shared his faith. And he said, I like the way I do evangelism better than the way that you don't do evangelism. <laughs> do something to gladly proclaim Jesus. The next thing is simple as well. Start small. So often we have grandiose plans. Just start small. Make a renewed effort to get to know your next door neighbors. Go on a walk around your neighborhood on a regular basis and say hello to people and meet them. Hang out in the front of your house instead of your closed off backyard. How about intentionally investing time with your family members and friends, especially the ones that are far from Jesus? Start small, make a simple invitation, have a simple conversation. Do something. Start small. The third thing is use the resources that you have. I, I love a, a simple step. that I have a friend uh, that, that, that he takes on a regular basis. He just gives away Bibles to people that he sees. He buys Bibles by the case, and then he just gives them away as he's prompted by the Lord to do so. Inside the, the, the front of each Bible, he just writes a simple note. He says, if you have any questions about God or his word, please feel free to call or email me. And then he puts a phone number and his, his contact information. He told me that recently he was sitting in a fast food uh, drive through and it was backed up and it was really slow. And as he sat there uh, in his air-conditioned car, he looked out the window and he saw one of the fast food workers had come out the back door and was sitting out there taking a break in the hot sun. And so he looked at what he had and he had a cold bottle of water and he had a Bible. And so he said, I was just prompted to do something. And so he jumped out of his car right there, left it idling in the line, ran to the back of the store. And he said, here, I want you to have this. And I want you to have this. And she took the bottle of water and she looked at the Bible and she said, I don't believe in God. And the first thing that came to his mind was, maybe this will help you think differently. And then he said, have a good day. And he went back and got in his car. Then he watched. She looked at the Bible. She set it down. She opened the bottle, took a big swig of it, got up and went back into the store to go back to work. She never looked at the Bible. He was disappointed. And as he sat there a little longer, a minute or two later, another guy came out, a worker. And he sat down. And he looked down and there's a Bible sitting there. And lo and behold, what does he do? He picks it up and he starts thumbing through it. And my friend observes him reading the Bible. Isn't that cool? My friend did something. 
And he started small. Sometimes he says people will call him or email him. Sometimes it will be weeks before he hears from anybody. He's given out dozens of Bibles. But he just waits. He does something and he waits. And sometimes something great happens. All of this story led up to the real story he was sharing is that he had the great privilege just this past week of baptizing somebody that he met through a phone call that he had given a Bible to months before. Isn't that a great story? And so that leads to our next simple step. Do something, start small, use resources. And the, the last one is just celebrate your successes. Celebrate. Share with others when you're able to have a simple gospel conversation. Rejoice when God saves someone. Share your story of what God is doing in your life. By the way, if you have a success story, I want you to let me know. I would love for you to be able to come up here on a Sunday morning and briefly share your success story, celebrating your success of Jesus and sharing him in your life. If you're if you can't do that, if you just can't get up in front of a crowd, we can, we can video it and we could share it that way. You could write it out and we can share it via our social media platforms. I'd love to be able to share your testimony of God working in your life as you gladly proclaim the good news. We are to pursue the presence of Jesus. We are called to, to gladly proclaim it. And that leads to this third element of the Savior strategy. And that is to use the power of Jesus. Use the power of Jesus. When gladly proclaiming the gospel, it is critical that we don't do it on our own strength. In our own abilities. Look at verse 15. As Jesus is preparing these guys, it says, And have authority to cast out demons. As he's sending out the 12, that word authority, it means it has the idea of delegated authority, permission to use power. Do you realize that Jesus grants us great and mighty power? If we are followers of Christ, if we have submitted to him as Lord and Savior, if we've been born again through the watery grave of baptism and risen to walk in a new way of life, he has implanted in us his Holy Spirit. That is powerful. The last words that Jesus spoke before he went back to be with the Father are recorded in Acts 1.8. Listen to this. But you will, he's talking to the, the 12 again, you will receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and yes, to the ends of the earth. That was certainly evident in the early church. In Acts chapter 4, we read, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony in the, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all, upon all of the believers. You see, whenever we are in the presence of Jesus, we have power. But here's something important to know. Whenever we are gladly proclaiming the good news of Christ, Satan's lurking about as well. He doesn't like that. One of his favorite tactics is to deceive God's faithful ones with lies and doubt and fear. He wants us to believe that we're not qualified enough to be used by Jesus. That we're not smart enough 
to be used by Jesus. That we don't have the right words to be used by Jesus. Those are just weak excuses that Satan uses to sidetrack us from walking in the power of Jesus. I like how one pastor put it. He said, Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God. Paul was a murderer. Gideon was insecure. Miriam was a gossip. Martha was a worrier. Thomas was a doubter. Sarah was impatient. Elijah was moody. Moses stuttered. Abraham was old. And Lazarus was dead. <laughs> you see, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. We have the power we need to do all that God has called us to do, but we must do it in His power, not relying on our own strength. As we wrap this up, I want you to just look at verses 16 through 19. Here we're introduced to the guys that he calls to join his team. These first 12. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boandrinus, that is, the sons of, of thunder. Abraham, or Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the Iscari Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's quite a list of names, isn't it? Now, this is not just a random list, and it's not without meaning. Meaning, so I want you to notice some observations that I think you might find encouraging as you prepare to serve, to become a follower of Jesus. I want you to notice in this list that Peter is always first. There's four different lists found in the New Testament, and his name is always first. His name that Jesus changed Two was rock. It means rock. Peter's often thought of as the leader. But what do we know about Peter? He failed. He failed a bunch of times. And he denied Jesus three times. Yet he's the leader. James and John are the next two. And along with Peter, they make up the inner circle. Jesus' closest chosen ones. They're given this name, which means sons of thunder. Now, that was either a compliment because they had strong, booming voices that were good for preaching, or more likely, it was to refer to their impetuousness and the anger issues that these true brothers had, like the time that they wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. They were also prone to selfishness, as we'll read about later in Mark 10, when they were jockeying for positions in Christ's new kingdom. Those are the, the inner core of the 12. Well, we know quite a bit about those first three, and we know a little bit about the next three. We don't know much at all about half of these guys. They were just ordinary guys who were insignificant and imperfect. They were like you and like me. By the way, this was a motley crew. It was made up of misfits. It's fair to say that none of these guys would have been voted most likely to succeed in their high school yearbook. There are no rabbis or professional theologians in this list. No refined guys from Jerusalem. They were also all younger men. This is a good reminder for us that are older 
to make sure that we are investing heavily in the next generations. These guys were the first century millennials. By the way, this was a major point of discussion last Sunday as we gathered in our future-focused gathering together, as we explored steps that we need to take as a church to reach younger generations. What sacrifices are we ready to make? What changes are we willing to endure in order to help younger people thrive in knowing Jesus? Are we so set in our ways, comfortable as fans in the stands, that we're unwilling to change, to make way for younger people to come to know Jesus? Finally, I want you to know that many of the names in this list are listed in pairs, which is kind of a hint of how Jesus is later going to send them out two by two on missionary journeys. We're going to see that in Mark chapter 6. Which causes me to ask you this. Do you have someone who is a partner in your faith life? Maybe it's a prayer partner or a small group that you study scripture with regularly or a couple of people to help you with spiritual accountability like we try to do through our triad groups here. If you don't have any of those things, I want you to ask me about helping you get connected. Because God has designed you not to be a fan in the stands all by yourself, but to be in the team as a follower with others around you to help and support you and to hold you accountable and to encourage you when you're down. The last thing I want you to notice about this list is that there was some natural tension on this team. There were foul-smelling fishermen. There was a doubter and a betrayer all huddled up with Jesus. How do you think Matthew the tax collector who worked for Rome and Simon the zealot who hated Rome, how do you think they got along? That reminds me that we don't get to pick our natural family or our spiritual family. Guess what? We're stuck with one another. So we might as well learn how to serve alongside one another on Team Jesus. If Jesus can use a ragtag bunch like this to turn the world upside down, can't he use you and me? And he will, if we fully surrender to him. If we walk in his power and not our own. Jesus doesn't want us to be fickle fans, but to become faithful followers. He has no other plan. He is counting on us. You know, fans, fans never really accomplish much. They're focused on the entertainment value, the personal comfort, good feelings. You know, I, I like to listen to sports radio quite a bit, and it always is interesting to me. A lot of times people will call in and they'll talk about our team. We did this. We didn't do well last night in the game, or we did really well. And it always strikes me as kind of humorous. They're talking about we. They weren't on the court. They didn't play out on the field or on the ice. They were watching on TV. They weren't even in the stands. Fans don't accomplish much. Followers, on the other hand, followers are willing to get into the game. They're ready to take on new challenges, to stretch themselves, to get out of their comfort zones, to make sacrifices, even to get a little bit dirty 
in order to bring about success for the team. And so are you a fan or are you a follower? You see, men and women are his method. His plan is people like you and like me. So let's pursue the presence of Jesus. Let's gladly proclaim Jesus. And let's remember to do it in the power of Jesus and not on our own. Let's pray together. Father, God, we pray that your spirit will work in each of us this day, this week in mighty ways as we consider how best we can strengthen our followership. Lord, help us to avoid the temptations of just sitting in the stands and watching the game go along. Father, help us to see simple, clear ways that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us passion and conviction and urgency as we look to the world around us and we see so many people that are lost and hurting and confused. Father, may we do many acts of service and love in order to draw people closer to you. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to share communion together right now. And this simple meal of communion is a gift from Jesus to his followers. Each time that we share in this meal together, we are declaring our allegiance, our commitment, our service to our leader, our coach, our team owner. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who suffered and died so that we can live and thrive with him into eternity. So today, as we share together in the communion, let's reflect on those truths. Jesus calls us to be followers, and he has made it possible through his sacrifice, his body and his blood, that the bread and the cup remind us of. In just a moment, as the music plays, we invite you to come to one of the four stations, two up here at the front, two at the back. You can take your communion back to your seat. You can stand at the table and take it. It doesn't matter. There's empty containers where you can put your, your used cups at the end. But I just invite you to just spend a few moments just reflecting on these truths. By the way, if, if it's hard for you to get to the one of the tables, just raise your hand. We've got some folks in the back that would be glad to, to bring a tray to you. Let's pray, and then let's celebrate our Lord together. Father, bless this time, Lord, as we remember and reflect on what your Son has done for us. Father, you also tell us in your word that when we take the communion, that we are proclaiming Jesus until he comes again. And so, Father, may we do that gladly today through this simple act of communion, and may we continue to do that throughout the week, remembering the great price that was paid so that we could have this precious freedom, the freedom from sin and death. And it is in the name of our Lord, our Savior, 
the one who was sacrificed, that we pray. Amen.